welcome to Pieces of History. I'm Colin McGrath. This week I'll be looking at the beginnings and early history of the Gaelic Athletic Association with Dr Richard McGilligot. Hi Richard, how are you? Hi Colin, nice to talk to you. Um, thanks for being on today, um, I really appreciate it. Uh, no, no no, trouble and uh, best of luck with the podcast. I've been listening to some of them and it's, it's great people are doing stuff like this and, and making history accessible to people. I've been looking to really do this for a while and finally with the lockdown I had some free time so I thought what, why not and give it a go. So so just before we kind of get into the whole GAA itself, um, can you give me a bit of your, your background then? Okay, well I suppose I'd be a, a modern Irish social historian. I, I, I do a lot of research on Irish sports history in particular. I did a PhD, I qualified with a PhD from University College Dublin uh, a few years ago, I did it under the supervision of Dr. Paul Rouse, who some of your listeners might know as a, uh, a sports historian in Ireland. And I looked at the early history of the GA, and I suppose what I was really interested in was the intersection of sport and social history and cultural history and political history. And I took my native county of Kerry as a case study. People are probably going there, typical Kerry man doing something on the GA, <laughs> sure, what else would you do? Uh, but I was always really fascinated by the fact that I see sport as such an interesting window into society and how it evolves. And I think you can really tell a lot about a country's history if you look at its sport and the way sport has developed, and especially in Ireland, where sport and politics and identity and culture are so intermingled because of our Ireland's unique uh, cultural and social and political history. So I, I graduated uh, with a PhD. I, um, uh, I brought that out as a book. Um, and I, I, I wanted to do a, a case study because um, I thought a county history, a kind of in-depth social history of the early GA on a county basis would hopefully, you know, it might challenge as well as complement, you know, a more national history of the association and bring up a few things, um, you know, a few interesting comparisons and contrasts and so on. And I suppose I was kind of, um, I took as a role model, David, the historian David Fitzpatrick, who looking at the Irish Revolutionary Period actually did a wonderful, uh, was the first person to do a, a county history of player, you know, of, of a county in the Revolutionary Period. And, and I kind of took that as a kind of role model as to what I was trying to achieve in the sporting histories and social history sense. So um, since then, I suppose I, I spent several years uh, lecturing part time in UCD in various and uh, history department in the ed- education school. I'm now lecture in modern and Irish history in Dundalk Institute of Technology. I started there last September. Um, and I suppose I've, I've, I've published a lot on the history of sport in Ireland and particularly the history of the GA. I brought up my book on the early history of the GA in Kerry in 2013. Uh, I edited a cultural and social history of sport in Ireland in 2016 with David Hassan from the University of Ulster. And I've had various articles on different aspects of Irish sports history, the early history of the GA, and recently I've been looking at uh, children's sport in Ireland around the time of the Gaelic revival and looking at how, I suppose, Irish nationalists were trying to use sport, in particular Gaelic games, I suppose, to, um, uh, I suppose, mould children into being good Irish nationalist citizens, trying to to use sport to try and open up uh their sense of what they wanted a new Irish Ireland to be and trying to, I suppose, indoctrinate them into their ideas of a of, of a, an Irish Ireland, a nationalist Ireland, and hopefully that they would inspire this to be the next generation who would bring about eventually Irish cultural and political independence. So I've been doing a lot of work in that area in recent uh, months and last couple of years. 
Oh, perfect. Oh, that's that sounds brilliant. Um, so just you, you've touched on it slightly there. So uh, how is Irish sport kind of looked at generally within academia? Has it been over the last number of decades, decades, or has it kind of only been the last 15, 20 years, yeah, really? Yeah, I suppose like, a sport is one of those um, pieces of social history that has really, uh, I suppose, our understanding of it has been revolutionized, you know, in the last 40, 50 years. And, and that was coming out of, I suppose, in British and American academia, a new focus on the ordinary, everyday experiences of people, you know, getting away from politics, getting away from governments, kings and queens, battles and war and out of that came sports history and of course like everything like social history in general like women's history uh, sports history took a little longer to come to Ireland but really from the late 1980s on there was a, a genuine uh, beginnings of sports history in Ireland and, and particularly with the GA and the GA being I suppose the most famous and largest and I suppose most historically studied sporting organization in Ireland what happens with the research into the GA kind of mirrors what was happening in sports history in general. So traditionally, the history of the GA and its early history, it was bound up in this, you know, this, this, this story that this, the, the organization was basically integral to the Irish independence struggle, that it was somehow an underground army that rose and, and, and traded in their hurleys for rifles that drove the British out, you know, as part of the independence movement. Of course, what we saw really when academic historians uh, began studying this in the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s, people like Dr. Paul Rouse, uh, Professor Mike Cronin, uh, people like this, a much more nuanced history of sport and the likes of the GA has come out. And really there's been an explosion in the interest in Irish sports history, really from the mid-1990s on. I was involved for years in the Irish Art Sports History Ireland, which was a, a society set up to promote the study of Irish sports history. And we, we held annual conferences. And really today, you know, there's some brilliant work being done on sports history. And I think that's going to be culminating in a couple of years' time when uh, Cork University Press, who, of course, have done such wonderful work with the Atlas of Irish Famine, and then, of course, the huge, phenomenal success of the Atlas of the Irish Revolution, they're now bringing out an Atlas of Irish Sport. And the ideas will hopefully tie in and bring to the general public you know, everything that's kind of been done on sports history in Ireland over the last 20 or 30 years and get the great and good of uh, historians looking at sports history together in one volume. Um, and I've written their chapter on the early history of the GA. So hopefully a lot of that, this 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 podcast will be a teaser for a lot of that, uh, mm -hmm. of the stuff that will be in that chapter. Oh, perfect. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, okay, so I suppose we should really get into it then. So um, Richard, there's, there's possibly some listeners who actually don't really know what the GAA is. Um, so could you give us just a quick outline of, of the organization, I suppose, at present? Yeah, so um, the GAA stands for the Gaelic Athletic Association. It is the largest sporting and cultural organization in the island of Ireland, and it was founded in 1884. Uh, specifically, it administers our two national games. Uh, that is hurling, the game of hurling, and the game of Gaelic football. So it is an all-island uh, 32 county organization. Um, every county has a county board which looks after the hurling and football, uh, the GA at a local level. Every single parish or town or village in Ireland has at least one, and in terms of towns and cities, multiple GA clubs. Uh, some play hurling, some play Gaelic football, many of them play both. Um, they organize, every county has its own internal competitions, and then the best 15 players 
in hurling and football in each county actually participate in an All Ireland Championship, which is basically the biggest, uh, most high profile uh, sporting competition in Ireland. And the regularly drawing crowds of over 80,000 into Croke Park in Dublin, which is the fifth largest stadium in Europe and is the home of the GAA. So this really is, you know, it is, and I, you know, I'm sure that there might be soccer, rugby supporters, national team at this, but the GAA is the biggest organization in Ireland in terms of participation, in terms of attendances, in terms of viewership, media profile and everything. And of course, what's unique about the GAA and it's something that, especially when I, during the summer, I lecture American students, they're aghast at this. It's amateur. You know, <laughs> these, these, these players play to massive tens of crowds of tens of thousands. Um, they train like, in this day and age, they train practically to be uh, professional athletes, but they're amateur. A lot of them are either students working as police officers, as, as doctors, uh, working in offices, working as teachers. They go back into work on a Monday morning. They train uh, evening nights and they, they perform at the weekend mm-hmm. so and of course mm-hmm. the GA is hugely proud of that that amateur status that these aren't professionals who are completely you know living in 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 in, in you know uh, beautiful mansions away from the ordinary people they are very much you know in their communities walking around their communities active in their communities and they're people that you see walking down the street every day of the week and then you can be on a Sunday afternoon cheering them in front of a packed stadium so it, it, it's unique in that sense and uh, the GAA is, is an utterly unique sporting organization and again that's part of its uh, why why I'm attracted to it why people are fascinated by it. Um, well I've watched the GAA for many years and uh, personally I'm still astounded that, that it is, is an amateur game because the the rigors that um the men and ladies put themselves through like week in week out training three three four or five times a week while holding down a regular nine to five job it's it's something to, to be marvelled at and I suppose you were saying as well it's right that's linked to the community as well it's that community spirit it's representing your community and mm-hmm. and county and like you said as well you're um a proud Kerry man as well and Kerry obviously has a, a very proud t- tradition and. You know they've obviously won the um, Sam McGuire many times. How, how many times is it now, Richard? Uh, Thirty-seven. It's not enough, though. It'll never be just, enough. <laughs> just, and just of course, the thirty-seven. We, we're, we're suffering under Dublin's domination at the moment. But yeah, but, yeah. but Kerry would be. You know, certain counties like Kerry would be known as it would be the preeminent Gaelic football county. Mm-hmm. Other counties like Kilkenny would be the preeminent, seen as the preeminent hurling county. And yes, you're very right with that column. Something that from the very beginning has been so integral to the GA is that sense of community and identity. And the GA has has been brilliant in that, in forging and helping to forge the idea of a a parish identity, a local identity and a county identity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, clubs, um, individual clubs become the embodiment of their communities. And, of course, there's fierce fierce rivalries um, developed with local clubs and other clubs in the county and then the county team becomes the embodiment of that county identity and again there's mm-hmm. fierce rivalries if you're from my part of the world Kerry and its neighbouring county Cork huge rivalry you have that with Tipperary and Kilkenny and Hurling you've got these massive rivalries that have built up and it's a way of expressing your county identity in a con- in a country where where you're from uh, means so much to you and so much about how you perceive yourself and see yourself to be. So again, that's, that's something that the GA, I suppose, was able to, to, to drill into that sense of community and identity um, that was so prevalent in Irish history and really has profited from that. Mm-hmm. 
I suppose that kind of nicely ties in then um, with actually the or the beginnings of the organization itself. So um, it was founded in the 1880s then. So was was the original point to kind of tie in those local communities then into, into sport, into no, the local I parish? Mean, the, the G was founded by a man from Clare called Michael Cusick. Now, Michael Cusick was a uh, respected uh, athlete in his own right. And of course, we talk now today as it's it's the GA is all about Gaelic football and hurling predominantly, but it was called the Gaelic Athletic Association. And actually at the start, Michael Cusick's, one of his driving ambitions was to basically ensure that ordinary Irish people, as he saw it, had access uh, and could be part of an, a nationwide athletics organisation. I suppose by the time we get to 1884, when the GA is founded, Michael Cusick is very much, you know, has be, has become very influenced by, you know, the emergence of cultural nationalism as a force in our society. And he basically sees the sweeping dominance of British culture on Ireland's sporting landscape as this symbolic and representation of British political and economic and cultural dominance of Ireland in general. And what he sees is that in athletics, in the area he knows best, um, athletics meetings in Ireland are basically being run under English rules. English rules which, you know, personify a kind of an elitism that denies ordinary working class Irish people from participating. There's all these rules um, introduced whereby, you know, if anyone so much as gets paid to tr- travel to a, an athletics meeting, if anyone is competing for any sort of small cash prizes or whatever, that this is not allowed. And and for Cusack, he sees this as basically being a way of, it's class snobbery. It's a way of destroying ordinary people's ability to compete in organized sporting competitions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the real genesis of this. He, he attempts to reform, try and reform at, Irish athletics from within, um, but he, 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 because of his, I suppose, tempestuous nature and the fact that this is a man who could never get along with anyone, he would fight with himself, um, he decides to try and basically create his own organisation to kind of take over athletics in Ireland. And to achieve that, he enlists the support of Morris Davin. Now, Morris Davin was from Tipperary. He's probably Ireland's most famous athlete at this stage. And Davin shares, I suppose, Cusick's um, worries. I, I think in his original letter that he sent to Cusick, he wanted to, do, as he called it, prevent the killing of those Celtic sports which are threatened with the same fate by the encroachment of Saxon customs as that which menaces our nationality under alien rule. So there's this sense of trying to revive or trying to stop British cultural domination. But Davin and Cusick are also very interested in reviving and not just um, allowing bringing athletics to the ordinary people, you know, people that they perceive to have been left outside um, Ireland's sporting landscape as it's developed now under English influence, but also to revive and reinvent, really, Ireland's native games. Cusick is very passionate about hurling. Davin is very interested in what he terms Irish, what he calls Irish football, but which eventually very quickly becomes known as Gaelic football. So that's it. That's that's the, I suppose, the um, raison d'etre at the start, it's to try and make competitive athletics in Ireland open to ordinary Irish people, but at the same time as that, to revive Ireland's Gaelic games and organise them on a national basis and to, again, ensure their survival mm-hmm. and hopefully their dominance. And so when did they essentially first kind of c- codify the games then? Was this done 
around this period or did that come slightly later yes. on? Yes, so, um, and Morris Devon is, is, is the real key figure in this. So the G is founded on the 1st of November 1884, it's his first meeting. Now, over the course of that winter, Devon basically codifies the rules for what become known as hurling and Gaelic football. And he uses a lot of, you know, and he's got a lot of influence in this. You know, he looks at the contemporary rules for the likes of association football or soccer, for rugby and so on. He looks at the various... Hurling was played right across Ireland, although it, it suffered a, a, a catastroph- catastrophic decline in the decades after the Irish famine. So there's various versions of hurling. There's various versions of what uh, types of Irish football or, 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 or native Gaelic football at the time. So he basically takes, you know, I suppose he picks and mixes from those modern codified sports that are emerging from Britain and their rules, but also some of the traditional rules uh, uh, and you know, um, the traditional rules and traditional aspects of what was hurling in Gaelic football. So he, ba- he basically, they invent hurling in Gaelic football as we know it, but they take on board a lot of different influences. And I suppose that's kind of an illustration of that is the fact that in the first rules of Gaelic hurling and football, when they're published in February 1885, two opponents are actually allowed to uh, break away from play and actually wrestle each other to the ground. And that's actually a traditional aspect of some parts of hurling and Gaelic football as it had been played before the GA was founded. That, that's news to me, Richard. I've never heard that before. Right, okay. How, how long did that take to kind of essentially kind of come out of the game then, or was it, did that go on for a yeah, while? Yeah, you see, I suppose the, the problem, the GA really begins to concentrate, firstly, on controlling Irish athletics. The reason for that is everyone knows how, you know, a, a track and field event takes place they're aware of the rules because these are long established rules so there's not much of you know there's not going to be much controversy over rules or what kind of rules are being used if you're concentrating athletics Gaelic football and hurling take longer I suppose to to I suppose graduate from being mere sideshows to being the center stage events of the GA because again you know there's different types of hurling played in different parts of Ireland there's different types of you know, traditional football being played in Ireland. And it takes time for these rules to be disseminated, for clubs who are being formed in the wake of the GA's foundation to come to an understanding uh, uh, and take them on board and so on. But what you begin to see is, you know, from 1886, 1887 on, hurling and football became become the main GA events. And again, the rules are evolving the whole time, um, you know, because they're work in progress. Actually, if you looked at the first rules, they almost give you no sense of how a G match in practice is played. You know, there's only about a dozen rules for hurling, dozen rules for football. They're all about the length of the pitch, uh, duties of the officials, very little about how the mechanics of the game is going. So, I mean, famously, Michael Cusick um, had to tell readers in Cork who, who sent him in some queries, actually, you're not allowed to run with the ball like you are in rugby. Actually, that's not what we intend. So basically, for the first two odd years of the GA, they're kind of fleshing out the rules. You know, mm-hmm. Cusack uh, is a journalist. He has some. He has, uh, a weekly column in two of the major Irish nationalist newspapers at the time. And he's basically using that as a, a sounding board, telling, telling readers, this is how I think hurling and football is going to be played, mm-hmm. responding to their queries, and, and the games evolve. And of course, a crucial step in the... Uh, domination, I suppose, of hurling and football in the GA's landscape is they, in 1887, they start the All-Ireland Championship. Um, Because for about 18 months beforehand, you had clubs forming across Ireland, sending in uh, 
you know, sending in notices to their local papers, international papers, saying, you know, we're the best hurling team in Ireland or we're the best hurling team in Connacht. We challenge any other team. So you've got these uh, club con- challenges going on, uh, often across county bounds, and they're bringing huge crowds who want to see these teams play, who want to know who was the best team in a given region. And the GAA very quickly understands, well, maybe we should have an All-Ireland competition where the best club teams in each county go into a feeder All-Ireland competition. And, of course, what they're influenced by is the huge success of the Football Association Cup, the FA Cup in England mm-hmm. at the same time, which is basically the same thing. So the GAA decides that they want to have this structure and this is the way to really bring their association forward. Um, and that's it. And from then on, you know, hurling and football quickly become the dominant sporting endeavours of the GA. And then if we push for- forward a wee bit, Richard, into mm-hmm. the 1890s then, um, I was I was reading then, I think it was one of your papers, that um, rugby, uh, cr- cricket and soccer kind of began to become more popular in the country as well then. So how, how did the GA cope essentially with that? Yeah, well, this is... This is something that's extraordinary about the early history of the GA. I mean, the, the GA is a revolution. You know, it's a sporting revolution in Ireland. Like Michael Cusack famously called it the prairie fire that just swept across the country. And he's not that wrong. I mean, by 1889, that's only four or five years after the GA was founded, it had 777 affiliated clubs. Now, to put that in context, at the same time, there was barely 50 rugby clubs in Ireland. And you're talking about possibly in and around 90 soccer clubs so this is something that has completely within the space of blink of an eye has completely um you know dwarfed the other sporting codes that exist in ireland and became the dominant sporting organization and that's because basically the ga catered to i suppose what you call a sporting constituency that was being left behind by those games and sports of the british empire hurling and or sorry rugby and cricket and, and and soccer and so on that really only um, I suppose were available to a small minority, predominantly you know town dwellers and so on in Ireland. So the GA was an incredible success, but mm-hmm. from that from that incredible success, it almost destroys itself in the space of a few short years. Um, the GA GA club numbers fall from that seven height of seven hundred seventy seven in eighteen eighty nine down to only one hundred eighteen by eighteen ninety four, and by eighteen ninety four it's it, it, it's estimated that outside of six counties, the GA no longer exists at any level. Um, now, how does that come about? Well, politics has a, a big role to play. Um, church, the, 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 the animosity of the Catholic Church towards what the GA is doing has a role to play. And also simple uh, socioeconomic, the socioeconomic situation. Um, now, basically, the Irish Republican Brotherhood who are a secret revolutionary organization, they become tantalized by what the GA they think can offer them. They see this as a brilliant source of recruits. Uh, you know, young men, active men, these are exactly the type of people they want, nationalists, exactly the type of people they want into their ranks. So the IRB makes an ill-fated attempt to basically gain control of the GEA in 1887. It, it, at their annual congress, Basically, the IRB uh, pile it in, pile in um, representatives, their own people, pretending they're, they're, they represent fictitious clubs all across the, the, the county, country. And they try and gain control of the GA. Now, to oppose them um, against the growing dominance of the IRB, you have a lot of 
people active in the GA who are kind of congregating along around the leadership of the uh, Catholic Church and priests and other church members who are involved in the GA and really don't want to see the IRB gain control. So basically the GA kind of is split between two factions, a kind of IRB control faction and a church-led faction. And the 1887 uh, convention basically descends into fistfights between both of them. And there's cries of, of some Fenians, uh, which are IRB members will be known as, as Fenians, of, of roaring out that we're going to pulverize the priests and all this. So this 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 obviously leads to huge uh, controversy for the GA, a lot of media attention. And really what you see is most of the Catholic hierarchy in Ireland, most of church leaders and, and rank-and-file priests really begin to denounce the GA and turn against it. So that's a huge issue. And that's then compounded by the, I suppose, the political downfall of Charles Stuart Parnell. Now, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know who Charles Stuart Parnell is, the uncanny king of Ireland, the leader of Irish nationalist sentiment, the leader of the Home Rule movement in the 1880s. He had been asked to be one of the first patrons of the GA. But of course, he famously, his affair with a married woman, Kitty O'Shea, became headline news uh, in, in late 1890. Now, again, the church begins to denounce Charles Church Parnell. He's allies in the British Parliament, uh, you know, desert him. The Irish Parliamentary Party that he leads splits in two between those who want to keep him and those who want to get rid of him, seeing that him now as a danger to the success of Irish Home Rule. But the GA decides to stand firm behind its leader. And again, because of that, the church's enmity towards the GA just increases exponentially. You've, you've reports from Leash, for example, of, 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 of parish priests going through the towns, tearing down advertising of GA matches and so on, you know, denouncing the GA from the pulpit, standing outside GA grounds and GA fields at match day, telling people to go home uh, and so on and so forth. So the, and, and also, of course, the GA is not solidly behind Charles Stuart Parnell. While the leadership of the GA vows to support him, a lot of individual clubs basically break away from the GA because they oppose him, oppose Charles Stuart Parnell's continued leadership of Irish nationalism. Like famously, the Dundalk Young Irelanders Club, which would have been one of the more prominent GA clubs at the time, you know, that they publicly released a, a letter to the press stating why they're removing themselves from the GA. So basically, um, police. The Royal Irish Constabulary, the police force in Ireland, who keep a close tab on the GA with their intelligence reports, they now see, uh, firstly, this, this church hostility and then this controversy over Charles Church Parnell. They say that this is going to represent the coup de grace of the GA. So that's all happening. And then what happens at the same time is that in beginning in 1890, you have a massive reception which grips Irish agriculture. Now, nationally, about over 62% of the GA's members are directly employed by agriculture. And if you go to a county like Donegal or Mayo or Kerry, that could be 75%. So with this massive recession as ever in Irish history, of course, what is the response? Massive immigration. Like you've over 700,000 people leave Ireland in the years which followed. And of course, so many of them are the rural young men that keep the GA glowing. Um, already by 1891, the Sport, which is Ireland's preeminent sporting newspaper at that time, it 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 it, it concludes that really emigration is the deadliest enemy of Gaelic games at this stage, and that, as they call it, the lifebloods of clubs across Ireland is simply being swept away. Mm -hmm. So basically, club affiliations, as I said, collapse. The GA's income 
which used to be worth hundreds of pounds in affiliation fees. By 1884, they only received £32 from affiliation fees that entire year. So basically, as I said, it's, it's estimated that there's only six counties that show any sign of GA activity by 1894. And in a lot of those counties like Dublin, the GA is, is in turmoil. And into that vacuum, uh, that's, a long, that's a long way of answering your question. Into that <laughs> vacuum then come rival sports. Um, because you have you have a whole generation of young men. We're you know we're predominantly this is a male organization. We're talking about for most of its for most of the history, um, young men who had become involved in a national organization who were interested in continuing you know a sporting career and their sporting passions, and now the likes of cricket, rugby, and soccer are there to pick up the slack, mm-hmm. and you see a lot of clubs switching to soccer or, or their players going to rugby or cricket. And what you see is in in the likes of Kilkenny and Tipperary and Wicklow, uh, the 1890s actually represents a huge resurgence in cricket in these counties. And, and, and cricket becomes hugely popular. If you look at the northeast of Ireland, the likes of Donegal and Derry and so on, the collapse of the GAA there really helps facilitate the growth of soccer in these areas. And if you look at areas like Kerry and West Limerick, places that were very strong GA, you see a real growth in rugby and, and rugby's popularity. So those rival sports really begin to, I suppose, um, utilize the GA's collapse at a local level uh, and, and really benefit from that. And then so Richard, just kind of coming on, pushing on a bit more then. So when essentially rejuvenation of the GA happens, was that more towards the turn of the century or was that kind of later on? What yeah, yeah, it, it's really from the last last few years, maybe from the mid-1890s on. I mean, because the GA came so close to collapse, and it really has come very close to collapse here, and people looking at this see it's because of politics, it's because of political infighting and so on, you know, the, the hostility to the church. This has really brought the GA to death, its death's door. So basically, I suppose what begins to save, what ultimately saves the GA is you've got the emergence, I suppose, of a new breed of officials and players who are basically determined to turn the association's fortunes around. And they want to do so by by making the GA a proper sporting organization, you know, something that's well run, well administrative, making sure that its games evolve so that they're exciting, skillful, that basically they can be become mass spectator sports. Uh, Richard Blake from County Mead was a, a crucial figure in this. Now he was a prominent referee in the GA and he and he he began to, I suppose, argue through the national press that look, the GA's games were, were far too crude, that their their rules were far too imperfect, that people were not interested in watching them. You know, G original GA games, you know, you had 22 players aside, and you can imagine the spectacle of these of of you know players who don't train you know, wearing everyday work boots and so on, playing on essentially farmers' fields. Like, this was a really heavily defensive game. There was not much action. This was just a massive scrimmage of people, of men. Uh, there wasn't much points or, 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 or goals being scored. I mean, there's, there's famously a couple of um, um, newspaper descriptions of some of the first Gaelic football games played in the GA in Kerry, uh, under G- or uh, Gaelic games played in Kerry under GA rules. I think one of them said... Uh, he's the, the report was pretty succinct of the match. He said, if I called this game a game of football, I'd leave myself open to a, uh, a case of liable. Um, he said, we went on for two hours and the only thing both uh, teams 
uh, managed to do in all that time was burst the ball they were playing with. So, I mean, this was a very dull sport. It, be, it was becoming a very dull sport. It was also becoming a very violent sport. You have regular instances of people being very badly um, injured. And in fact, a lot of fa- a significant amount of fatalities at GA matches. And what also plagues the GA at this time is the fact that so many of its matches are just, um, you know, they're called off or by a team walking off. There's huge controversy. There's basically, of the, the four All-Irelands played between 1890 and 1894 were basically called off without a winner. I mean, a team would score, the other team would um, protest the referee and then would just walk off the pitch and, and would not yeah. come back and play the game. So all these mm-hmm. problems are going on at this stage. But Blake is the one of the first to realise that, look, you have to make this a mass spectator sport. You have to have a sport that has clearly understood rules, that is exciting, that is something that will capture people's imaginations. Now, he gets himself elected to be the GA secretary in 1895, and he starts bringing in um, a whole host of... Uh, new playing rules, evolving the playing rules in hurling and Gaelic football. So he reduces team numbers down to 15 a side and then eventually becomes, uh, or 17 a side, that eventually becomes 15 a side. He makes sure that officials, you know, properly officiate matches, that they're, that they're properly, that referees are now uh, assisted by the likes of linesmen and so on and so forth. Uh, the scoring system evolves. And, 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 and what he's trying to do is make the GA a, you know, a competitive sporting product for people who want to watch sport. So he manages to steady the ship, as it were. Uh, under him, club affiliations creep back up to around 350. Uh, annual mu- income begins to mushroom once more. The GA becomes more profitable. And then, because of Blake's uh, term in office, the GA then is able to reap the wind of the real cresting of the Irish Gaelic revival that happens at the turn of the 20th century, you know, and the profound, I suppose, ideological influence of the Gaelic revival in Irish life. What it does is it pours into the GAA a whole cohort of new people, you know, diligent, educated, competent, cultural nationalists. And they're determined to have the GAA front and centre, this cultural awakening, because at the end of the day, the GAA represents to them the sporting embodiment of the Irish Ireland culture nationalists are looking for. You know, this is something that should be at the front and centre of this great national reawakening, along with our language, along with our, you know, our songs and our music and so on, uh, and promoting Irish industry. You know, the GAA is there. It is what, you know, it is our sporting manifestation of ourselves. So that's that's really where the GAA's fortunes begin to turn. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got cultural nationalists determined to put the GA front and center in this new wave, uh, this new this new mass movement that's emerging, and also determined to make the GA properly run, properly administered, um, and its games open to mass spectator participation, which is what begins to happen. So uh, we're pretty much just at the turn of the century then, and. Um... <clears throat> Was there ever a, a, a chance or was it ever discussed about maybe turning the game professional at this point or would that be maybe discussions no, for later I mean, on? No, the, the GA, um, initially the GA chose an amateur status for pure practical reasons. The GA knew it could not sustain. Ireland was not wealthy enough. Its, its membership would not have been wealthy enough to support a professional 
uh, sport, as in soccer and rugby and so on, like its rival soccer and rugby. Like that was just practicality, you know, a socioeconomic practicality. The G, um, but then of course as it evolved, the G, this this practical amateurism turned into a kind of you know uh, something that the G could flag a fly on a, a flag mass saying, proclaiming, you know, look at our organization. It be, it made a necess- a virtue out of a necessity, really, very much so. But the G was always pragmatically amateur for example uh the ga continued to uh, was very successful in taking control of irish athletics and it continued to run irish athletics as its governing body until the 1920s but it still allowed you know you know athletes to compete for small cash prizes and so on and um, there's reports from carlo in the 1890s of you know the more more um the more skillful players in the county actually hiring themselves out there's one one individual who hired himself out to five separate clubs in the Carroll County Championship that year, you know, to avail of his services. You have these things going on, but it's a prat in 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 broader terms. The GA knew that Ireland couldn't sustain a a, a a a professional sport of the size of what the GA became, and so on. But you do see, particularly as the GA, I suppose, begins to grow into you know the dominant sport and the most popular sport in Ireland and I suppose in the decade before the First World War you see GA teams becoming much more organised and they begin to train and particularly before major events like All-Ireland Finals the clubs and counties the counties that have qualified for that go into dedicated training camps because as the game becomes faster as the playing rules evolve as the numbers on the team decrease I suppose as you have better quality more specialized footwear and better quality equipment it becomes a much more faster game so you require more fitness and better skill levels so you see on the back of that training uh beginning to take off you know trainers and coaches actually brought on board different tactical innovations and distinct playing styles begin to emerge within counties and between counties and so on and again there is a backlash against this by some people saying well is this not turning the ga semi-professional at this stage you know these ideas of training uh, camps and so on and so forth. So I suppose there's always been a little bit of that tension there between an amateur ethos, but how far can that go? You know, can you stop people, you know, taking on aspects of professionalization? Where was the, the GAA at the point of, say, 1905, 1910? Whereabouts were we? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, like, I would call that decade and a half between the turn of the century and World War One. I, I would call that the when the GA really came of age and really became the national game, hurling and football really became Ireland's national games. Um, you know, the GA began to attract mass spectatorship. Um, you also had, of course, at this stage, there's a tr- transformation in media coverage of the GA, and particularly was the Irish Independent when it was founded and launched in 1905. That began to give extensive attention to GA events, and that kind of forced its competitors to do likewise. Then you had the introduction of more and more photography, you know, um, so teams were being photographed, you know, county teams in full Ireland being photographed in the paper, action shots of matches and so on. The GA then takes the decision to actually create four provincial councils in 1900, one in Ulster, Munster, Leinster and Connacht. And again, that allows a much greater oversight and organisational oversight and spread and development of the GA, particularly in regions like Ulster, where it's traditionally been weakest before this. Um, the rail, you know, the, the spread of rail travel, again, helps foster the huge surge in attendances of the GA. And, of course, the rail companies are very quick to see 
the uh, benefits of being very involved with the GA. They begin to sponsor GA uh, tournaments, give cups, hence where the railway cup competitions come from, you know, giving special discounts for GA travellers going to matches and so on. And then what really begins to help is, I suppose, those two great sporting dynasties emerge at this time, at just at this time of heightened media interest. Kilkenny uh, wins its first All-Ireland in 1904, and by 1913 has won six more. Kerry in football wins its first inaugural All-Ireland in 1903. And then it's from that then these two dynasties really begin to, you know, uh, I suppose they're they're latched on by the media as the two great teams of this era. Uh, Kerry's first All-Ireland, for example, it goes to three matches. It's the only All-Ireland go, to go to a second replay. Over 60,000 people travel to witness those games, you know, which is a huge, in the context of Ireland at this time, it's an astonishing attendance. And then in 1913, Kerry and Loud, which people might be interested in, 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 interested to hear, Loud were actually Kerry's big rival at that stage. In 1913, Kerry and Loud contest a, a competition called the Archbishop Croke Memorial Tournament. And that was basically to raise funds for a GA sponsorship or a GA sponsored memorial to its uh, original patron, Archbishop Thomas Croke. And they were the first inter-county games to be played under a new 15 rule aside. And a lot of subsequent writers uh, and contemporaries look back on that final and the replay as basically the moment the GA Gaelic football became, came of age and Gaelic football became the most popular sport in Ireland. 50,000 people squeezed somehow into Jones's Road the the GA grounds used by Dublin or the GA the grounds used by the GA in Dublin for the replay fifty thousand people that blows away any attendance record for anything and I'm talking about soccer internationals rugby internationals out of that the GA has enough money to actually buy Jones's Road the ground they rent and to actually rename it Croke Park and of course from then Croke Park becomes the administrative heart and the symbol of the GA so by the time of the First World War, the GA has become really hurling and f- football, especially, have become the main sports in Ireland, attracting massive crowds. Uh, and and from there, the GA will grow from strength to strength. And of course, on top of that, by this stage, the GA is making concentrated efforts to penetrate Ireland's education system, leading to the formation of you know schools, councils, and so on. Women are beginning to make, I suppose, their first tentative steps into the Gaelic playing field. You have the publication in 1904, the first formal rules for a female version of hurling called Camogie. And then in 1913, a national government body, the Camogie Association, was founded. And of course, by this stage, Gaelic games have also become a cornerstone of the sporting world of Irish immigrants. You know, you have GA competitions being developed in the major cities in America. In 1896, the London County Board is formed in Australia, in Argentina, in anywhere where there's significant Irish immigrant populations, the GA now has become rooted. So really the GA has become, you know, the major sporting body in Ireland at this stage. And Richard, I think that's a perfect time actually to book end the end of this episode because mm-hmm. I think what we need to do, um, because there's so much more we need to cover, is to end it there and come back for a second episode and to talk about, obviously, um 1910s 1920s and to push on further there if that's okay to you no worries Colin. loved it perfect perfect well thanks very much for joining me and i'll speak to you next time thank you thanks 
Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Carl McGrath, with additional material by Andrew McGrath. If you would like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, and you can also get involved in the show by leaving comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.